Well, good morning again. It is good to be with you all in this way. And uh, next week, we're going to be wrapping up our series, uh, working through these I am statements of Jesus. And Pastor Alex will close us out with Jesus' statements about being the true vine out of John 15. So in the meantime, I get to preach out of somewhat controversial passage, maybe not among Christians so much, but definitely among those who uh, do not follow Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. It's a challenging passage, but I think and I hope that what we are going to see is more fully what Jesus is inviting us to in this passage. It's a remarkable passage. It's a beautiful passage. And we're going to give it kind of the context both before and after. And I think we're going to see more fully what Jesus is calling us to when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you read through these various chapters, kind of from John chapter 13 through to John 18, um, you're reading what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus, the night before he is crucified, has broken bread with his disciples, and he's imparting wisdom to them. He's imparting uh, his kind of farewell words to them. And at the end of chapter 13, Jesus says something shocking to them. He says, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you, he says. And immediately after that, he gives a commandment to them that is ultimately a command to live out their highest call, to love one another, and that Jesus' followers ought to be marked ultimately by love for one another. However, they're quite shell-shocked by this statement that he's going to leave them. And they completely neglect, they completely glaze over this call and they get fixated on it. They get stuck on what was said about him leaving. And this is where we're going to start reading uh, from John 13, 36 onward. But before we go any further, why don't we just take a moment and pause and pray. Gracious God, would you give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts that that we may receive what your word and your son has revealed. And may you give us the strength to do what you have commanded. Amen. So John 13, 36 through to John 14, verse 14. Simon Peter asked him, Lord... Where are you going? Now, just as a reminder, Jesus has just said, love each other. But right before that, he said, I'm leaving. And so again, Simon Peter, he's kind of speaking on behalf of them. He's like, okay, but Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you will also so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. I want you to pay attention to that language. He says, "You know the way." Thomas now speaks up. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him, sorry, you, know, you do know him and you have seen him. And now another disciple, Philip, speaks up. He says, Lord, Lord, show us the Father and that will just be enough for us. Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the work, uh, will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do what and, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. So to set the stage here, the disciples are rife with fear. And Jesus gives them, just moments prior to where we picked up, this critical call to love one another, but yet they are fixated on this statement that Jesus is going to leave them. They cannot let it go. Simon Peter, who's often the spokesperson for the disciples, no doubt he was saying what others were thinking. And he says, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? They still had not yet fully understood Jesus' call to the cross, and they still had not yet fully understood the fullness of who Jesus was. Jesus responds and says, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Jesus is saying, I have to go before you. This is not something that you can do with me. I will go alone. And Peter, in a burst of desperate, misplaced devotion, cries out, he says, I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus humbles him by telling him not only can he not do that, but that he will deny that he even knows Jesus before the morning comes. And yet he says right after, 
He says right after that, do not let your hearts be troubled. Clearly, the disciples were burdened by Jesus' words. They're confused. They want to know and understand all that is about to unfold. But Jesus, in his grace and in his wisdom and his compassion, says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, if you read through the, the earlier, earlier in chapter 13, it says that Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. And yet, here he is carrying, even before the cross, he is carrying the burdens of his friends, even amid his own troubles. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith in me also, he says. Trust me, there are good things in store for you. There is room for you where I am going to my father's house. Now, There's a lot of discussion around what exactly is meant by when Jesus says, my father's house. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, a wonderful scholar, missiologist, theologian, says it this way. He says, the father's house is not a building made with hands, nor is it another world beyond death. It is that new dwelling place of God in the spirit, which is constituted by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The most plain reading of this language is that Jesus is referring ultimately to his future coming, that he will return and ultimately dwell with us. And he uses the metaphor of a house with many rooms in the sense that he wants to share that God is not a God of scarcity, but that God is a God of abundance, that there is more than enough room in the new creation for all who know him and trust in the way. But but Thomas points out a little problem. He says, Lord, we we don't know where you're going, so how how can we possibly know the way? And Thomas and likely others are still clearly thinking from a very worldly, naturalistic perspective, like Jesus, physically, where are you going? So how can we know how to follow you? you? Are you going outside of Jerusalem? Are you going outside of the Roman Empire? We don't know. He can't see beyond flesh and bone, and you see this kind of play out a little further with Thomas uh, after the resurrection when Jesus appears to his disciples. But he answers Thomas directly and concisely. He says, in response to not knowing which way to go, he says, no, 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 I, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, let's take a moment and just zoom out, just kind of take a little bit of a wide lens moment here. Again, the disciples are scared and confused because their teacher, their leader, their rabbi has just said that he is leaving them and that they can't even follow him right now. But he promises that he will be with them again one day and that actually they will know the way to go because he is, in fact, the way. He's giving direction to the lost. He's giving truth where there is misunderstanding and confusion. And he's giving the words of life to those who are consumed in this moment with angst and death. When he says he is the way, he is saying we don't know the way in and of ourselves. That we have no map to what lies tomorrow, let alone in the great beyond. 
Our minds cannot comprehend what God has prepared for us both in this age and the age to come. When Jesus says he is the truth, he means it in the sense that through him, God is revealed in his fullness, that God proves all his promises true, that you go all the way back to the beginning. You go to Genesis chapter three, where God promises to, through the seed of Adam and Eve, to reverse the curse of sin thousands of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Now it's coming to fruition. I am the truth. God is, God's words are trustworthy and true. And when he says he is the life, he means that in the sense that the very essence and life of God is poured out on humanity through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. When we know and follow the way, we walk in the truth and the life. When we know and follow the way, we walk in the truth and the life. Jesus' life and death and resurrection reveal the fullness of God. To know God is to know Jesus. That is the heartbeat of what he's getting at here. To know God is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God. And we don't come to God through mental ascent, through striving, through our experiences, though those intersect and weave their way in at times. In the end, it is knowing God through Jesus, knowing Jesus through God, and walking in the way, living out the truth, and partaking in the life. There's a medieval priest, uh, Thomas Akempis, and he says it this way. It's, this is really, really beautiful. He's sort of speaking um, and paraphrasing what Jesus says. He says, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life of which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Amen? But now it's another disciple's turn, P uh, Philip. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. That will be enough for us. What Philip says here is kind of reminiscent of Moses on Mount Sinai before God. He says, Lord, show me. Please show me your glory. But in this case, Philip doesn't realize that God's glory is already there right in front of his eyes. And so Jesus, he chides Philip a lot, a little, as though he's beginning to get a little frustrated with their lack of understanding. And I'm quite provoked in a good way with what Jesus says here. He responds to Philip, and I believe that this is a question not just for Philip, but I believe it is a question for us. He says, don't you know me? Don't you know me? I don't know about you, but that question kind of pierces my soul a little bit. Don't you know me? After all they've been through, after all they've seen and done, don't you know me, he says. 
Jesus' detractors had an excuse. They were spiritually blind. They had pride. They had anger getting in the way. But these were his friends, and yet his friends could not see. In some ways, this is central to the entire passage, that Jesus is calling us to fully and completely know him. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you have seen the Father, you have seen Jesus. And in verse 12, Jesus returns. He kind of circles back to where, what he's been saying all along, that he is going, that he's leaving. He's going to be with the Father. But now he takes it a little further, and he says that this is not only necessary, but it is a good thing, that the work Jesus began on earth will continue, and in fact, greater things will happen. Jesus says that like a promise, not like a command. He's saying, this is just a natural consequence of my leaving. Greater things will happen. And not only will greater things happen, but whatever you pray for in my name, in Jesus' name, will come to fruition, will happen. Now, those are some really wild statements that could so easily be misunderstood. So they warrant taking a few moments to draw attention to them. Jesus says two things. He says, in my absence, when I leave, that his followers will do A, greater works, and that what, and then B, whatever they pray in the name of Jesus will be given to them. Now, the first claim, that we will do greater works. It's difficult to think, and this is a very kind of human way of thinking about it, it's difficult to think that Jesus simply meant that, you know, over the course of centuries and millennia, there's going to be many, many more Christians, so collectively they will do more things. That's, that's factually true, but Jesus didn't say that they will do many things. He said that they would do greater things. And yet, I'm also hard-pressed to think that Jesus here means that we will surpass the nature of what Jesus accomplished on earth calming the sea, turning water into wine, raising a person from the dead after four days, uh, raising to life himself and conquering death and the grave. I don't think that that is something that necessarily we can accomplish. Now, I'm not saying that, those, that we might never do those things. That's not what I'm saying. I believe in all of that. I believe that God can do any of those things as he chooses, but it's certainly not normative. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure none of us would ever doubt God. Now, most people smarter than, me, smarter than me, what they really think Jesus is getting at here is that in Jesus' absence, he gives us what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And it is given and activated in believers, and the mission of Christ's church spreads among the nations. Millions and billions come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as the way, as the truth, as the life. And as this happens, all of this happens in part because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but in large part because Jesus ascends to be with the Father. It is not until this event happens, until Jesus ascends, that the Holy Spirit is poured out in fullness on all believers. And all of a sudden, there is this increase in people believing and receiving the gift of salvation. And it very quickly surpasses anything that happened in the four years of ministry that Jesus had on earth. And then we get to the second statement. He says, whatever you pray in my name, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. This is one of those things that can be believed in too much or too little. 
Too little in the sense that you pray with no hope that your prayer will be answered, and it's a little bit of a defeating mentality. And too much in the sense that you take this statement like just drastically out of proportion, and you assume that whatever you pray, no matter how, you, how flippant or careless, will happen because you're praying it in the name of Jesus. Neither of these extremes, as you can guess probably, are, imagine, are helpful for us. The latter especially, because if you pray and do not receive what you fervently prayed for, how discouraging is that? How disorienting is it when you believe you're praying something in the will of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and it does not come to light? And that's happened to all of us, I'm certain, in this room, that all of us have had fervent prayers in the name of Jesus that have not come to light. So what do we do with that? It's not about my lack of faith. My faith ultimately is not efficacious to just will God to change and do something. To understand, we need to know what it means when we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. It's not some rubbing of a lamp. It's not some magical invocation or incantation. In fact, I believe that there is a connection here to the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And taking the Lord's name in vain is not limited to just saying certain modern phrases that sound kind of like, oh my gosh. It is far deeper than that. Taking the Lord's name in vain is misrepresenting or improperly bearing the name of God. In a way, it's connected back to Genesis chapter 1, like so many things are. That we are image bearers of the almighty God, and to invoke the name of someone is to represent that person. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying as image bearers, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, as representatives of this way this truth, and this life. So this means we do not pray in the name of Jesus to get whatever we want. I mean, just a little thought experiment. Let's just take that to a literal degree for a moment. Suppose, and Alex isn't here to, to refute this, but suppose the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs are playing, and I pray in the name of Jesus for Hab's victory. But little do I know that Alex is praying also in the name of Jesus for a Maple Leafs victory. It is silly to consider, but people actually do this. They pray that their sports team will win. Both prayers can't be answered in the affirmative, regardless of the fact that we prayed in the name of Jesus. I mean, suppose for a moment that you you got, that you received everything you prayed for. That would be disastrous. Suppose you prayed in high school to marry your high school crush. Some of you are looking back and you're like, oh yeah, that would have been real bad. Now, for me, um, I did marry my high school crush and um, so I'm exempt from this one. But (laughs) anyway, um, we're celebrating 12 years married in a couple weeks and uh, so... It does happen sometimes, but not very often. We had to communicate when we were both working in youth ministry. We had to communicate to the, to the kids a lot when they'd get in like a serious relationship. They'd be like, but you guys got married and look at you. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was always a, a hard thing because we were the exception to the rule, not the rule. How awful my life would be if I got everything I prayed for in the name of Jesus. 
some irresponsible things that I prayed for, things that I had no knowledge of. What we're looking at here in this, in this entire passage is Jesus inviting us to know him and to live out of that place of knowing him. And that the more we know him, the more we will ask and want the things that Jesus wants. The more we will be confident in asking and we will receive. When we truly know Jesus, we will have right belief, which I believe will lead to right action, which will be coupled with right prayer. Right belief, right action, right prayer. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. When you believe in me, you will do great works. In fact, you will do greater works. And as you go, you will become more and more aligned with my will to the point that your desires are purified and refined so that you can be confident that I will give you what you ask for. Now think about this. When you truly know and love someone, what you ask for them, what you ask from them is often aligned with who they are. For instance, last weekend, I was kind of exhausted in a bit of a post-Easter lull. It was a busy week and I was just tired. Um, and that night, I think it was Friday night, I was planning on cooking dinner. We had some food in the house that kind of get, needed to get used up, and I was just not feeling it, though. And, and, and my wife, Lindsay, kind of caught up on this. And in her infinite loving wisdom, she looked at me, and she said those three magical words. She said, want to get takeout? And I nearly cried tears of joy. And then I cried actual tears of joy um, from the spicy ghost pepper burrito that I got to enjoy later on. When you know someone and you love someone, what you ask of them is frequently, not all the time, because we're sinful and fallen at times, it will frequently be aligned with who they are. But just be aware that our prayers aligning with the will of Jesus will not always mean delicious takeout burritos. Jesus' will was perfectly aligned with the Father. And yet Jesus' perfect alignment with the Father led him to the cross. Praying in the name of Jesus sometimes means praying difficult things. It means praying, not my will, but yours be done. It means praying for your friend, your spouse, your child to know Jesus, but it also means praying for the strength to get through another disappointment, another loss, another illness, another lockdown. It means praying for God to move mightily among the nations which he is pleased and desirous to do. But also, we pray that God would move mightily in our own hearts, in our own souls, refining us, growing us, turning our hearts and wills toward Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is more than just a bumper sticker or a billboard verse that you see driving down the highway. It's more than a statement of required belief to be admitted entrance into the kingdom of God. It is as much, if not more so, a verse for Christians than for those who have yet to believe. Whether we have much faith, little faith, or no faith, 
we need to continue to truly know and believe in Jesus as the way. This is a lifelong process. This is not a one-time decision. And like Peter, our way to the way is often crooked and broken. Peter, the denier of Jesus, Peter, who erroneously drew his sword to defend, get this, try to defend the king of kings and lord of lords. Peter, the one who showed favoritism to the Jewish believers rather than welcoming the Gentile believers. I don't know about you, but my way of following the way sometimes models Peter more than Jesus. I felt that this week even, as I sat there in my office on Friday afternoon, trying and failing to flesh out the beautiful sermon notes that I had prepared that Allison and Alex and I had met like a week and a half ago before they took the week off to kind of chat through this text. And, and I was sitting there with my sermon notes just with like a blank expression, just like waiting and waiting and waiting for this government announcement about further lockdown and whether or not I was going to have to, you know, call our elders to figure out whether we were going to have an in-person service. And I was just like stressed and overwhelmed and feeling a little bit of that COVID despair that I'm sure all of us have felt at various moments. I think it was very human of me, but it also displayed my frail and flawed way of following Jesus, which oftentimes takes the form of lacking trust. So may we cling to Jesus as the way, as the truth, as the life the bringer of life that is truly life, the one who died so that we might truly live, the one who lived again so that we might live again. This morning, we're going to take a moment just now before, uh, before LNA comes up to do the prayers of the people. And I want to just ask you a series of questions. And whether you're in person here or whether you're at home, in the quiet of this moment, I want to ask a couple questions. The first one is this. This morning, would you put your trust in Jesus as the way? It is so easy these days to feel lost and directionless and hopeless. Would you take a moment right now, right where you are, to place your trust in him anew? This morning, would you also put your trust in Jesus as the truth? There are so many voices out there these days. It is sometimes hard to recognize the truth when we hear it. Would you take a moment right now and just allow Jesus to cut through the noise and to know and experience his truth? Just sit in that for a moment. Bask in it. And finally, would you put your trust in Jesus as the life? It is so easy to cling to perishable things. We put our trust in so much that can never truly satisfy. So would you take a moment 
to ask God to breathe new life into you, to give you the strength to trust in the life that Jesus gives us, the life that is truly life. Would you take a moment and do that now? Thank you, Lord, for being the way, the truth, and the life. May we trust you more. Amen.